Sign up to The Economist for in-depth curated expert analysis of world events and topics ranging from business and culture to science and technology. You'll get the weekly digital edition, online-only articles, curated newsletters on politics, the markets, science, culture and China, and full access to The Economist Podcast Plus. The Economist is independent journalism for independent thinking. Go to economist.com and get your first month free. February the 24th, 2022. A date none of us will ever forget. At a certain moment, the debate became irrelevant. Perhaps you always thought Putin was going to invade. Perhaps you were sure he wouldn't. Perhaps you thought he had been bluffing, but then he felt he had to go through with it to show that he wasn't. At 0500 Eastern European Standard Time on the 24th of February, the only thing that mattered was that Russia had launched a full-scale invasion of Ukraine. Vladimir Putin had announced the special military operation a couple of hours earlier on Russian state TV. Within minutes, the first explosions were being heard in Kyiv and in other major cities. Videos showed Russian troops crossing the border in the north, south and east of the country. The White House press secretary briefed reporters that Kyiv could fall in days, maybe less. The only question would be how long it would take and how much death and destruction would be in its path. I'm Arthur Snell. This is Doomsday Watch, The Ukraine War, Episode 2, Invasion. Let's go to the shelters. Explosions can be heard very closely in the area. So arguably the, the conflict locked in from the 22nd of February when the Russians recognized Luhansk and Donetsk as independent territories and started to move troops, their own troops, over the border to protect those areas. Actually, of course, to, to fix Ukrainian positions on the line of contact. Dr. Jack Watling works for the Royal United Services Institute and is an expert on modern warfare. That built into the evening of the 24th when a massive air and missile strike campaign started. Electronic warfare knocking out radar, decoy drones flying in to saturate the air defence picture, followed by not only Russian strike aircraft but a large number of long-range fires. It had mixed success. (laughs) 
the Russians followed up, mainly advancing an administrative column with orders to bypass resistance because they weren't anticipating very much resistance. So you had the Axis coming south from Gormel in Belarus towards Kiev, which was supposed to envelop the city. You had the Axis coming through Chernihiv, uh, which was supposed to hit Kiev from the left bank of the Dnieper. You had an Axis going through Sumy, another going into Kharkiv. And then in the south, you had the breakout from Crimea, headed towards Kherson, Mukulayev, Odessa. So a very significant number of axes opened up simultaneously. And then towards dawn, air assaults, most famously in Hostomel, where two waves of 10 transport helicopters and another wave of attack heli aviation flew along the path of the river. Uh, in order to keep low and out of the air defense picture and then cut across to, to land on Postamal itself, which they achieved, but subsequently failed to hold it because they were struck with artillery and there was a counterattack by an armored unit. Um, so the initial Russian invasion plan was to occupy almost all of Ukraine's major political centers within about 72 hours. They were anticipating that their agents of influence would isolate a lot of Ukrainian units by preventing centralized command and control. And also that many senior Ukrainian officials who were working for them would encourage units to save themselves by not resisting. And of course, in reality, uh, in most places, they were fiercely resisted. And so we can get into the details of how things unraveled for the Russians, but I think people don't necessarily appreciate how close run it was in the first few hours and how fortunate we were. As Jack was saying just there, Hostomel and Ukraine's dogged defence may have been the turning point of those early stages of the war. If the Russian Spetsnaz had taken control of the airfield, they were planning to land around 20 transport planes fully loaded with elite troops only miles from the centre of Ukraine's capital. In those earliest hours of the war, the Ukrainians were not ready for that sort of fight. Things could have been very different. Instead of a lightning strike at the centre of power, the failure to seize Hostomel led to the signature moment of that early campaign, the famous 40-mile traffic jam. Because the attempt to land a bridgehead of elite troops in Kyiv didn't work, the Russians had to drive their invasion force in from the border, and in doing so, they lacked sufficient logistics and organisation for a rapid advance. They moved slowly along major highways, presenting easy targets for Ukrainian forces armed with British and American-provided anti-tank weapons. The other important factor in those early days was Russia's failure to achieve air superiority. We've all lived through enough US-led wars to know that they always begin with a major air campaign, taking out air defence, whether in Iraq, Libya or Kosovo. But the Russians didn't seem able to do this. And if you look at their training and equipment, it seems that air superiority was never a realistic prospect. So why was this first part of the invasion such a failure? How did one of the world's greatest military powers manage to make such a mess of things? Not long after the invasion, I spoke to military historian Peter Caddick-Adams. 
The Russians clearly had ideas, not even of a blitzkrieg. I would say that they had been, or Vladimir Putin um, had been misadvised, that Ukraine was ripe for the taking and that all he had to do is knock on the door. The people of Ukraine would open it with open arms and uh, he would have another easy conquest. Uh, He took that advice. And what happened? Well, the Ukrainians defended themselves, which came as a great surprise. Um, I think Putin had, had budgeted from from all I've heard for a three day campaign. Um, the troops took very little with them in the way of ammunition, supplies, uh, food, water, and fuel. And uh, from those taken prisoner, we have gained that they were simply aware they were going on manoeuvres in Belarus, these these widely advertised manoeuvres, which are in fact a way of concentrating the troops ready for invasion. But the conscript soldiers didn't know that, and neither did their junior officers. Um, and they were told about 12 hours beforehand when all their personal documentation was taken from them and all their mobile phones, and they were given first aid kits, and then told, right, in 12 hours you're crossing the border. And if the charge d'affaires in Canberra in Australia is to be believed, um, the Ukrainian charge d'affaires, he revealed at a press conference that some of the Russian troops going into Ukraine didn't have much in a way of military equipment with them, but what they did have was parade uniforms to march through, through the streets of Kiev when it was all over. There may actually be a bigger story here, which explains Russia's failures of planning, military strategy and execution across the board. You see, perhaps Russia never actually planned to invade Ukraine, at least in the classic military sense. There was no true intention to have its army seize the terrain from the enemy, having defeated them in battle. Yes, they began an invasion, but there was another front, the secret war. For the year leading up to the invasion, Russia's FSB, the successors to the KGP, had been investing huge sums of money preparing for the collapse of Ukraine's government. They were confident they had everything in order, spending the last few days planning their accommodation in Kyiv on what they expected would be the start of a successful occupation of the country. The FSB believed, and they passed this incorrect belief back to Putin, that they had Ukraine stitched up. A vast network of paid informants and agents inside Ukrainian institutions were supposed to turn the levers of government over to the Russians at the moment of the invasion, removing the need for a fight. It's interesting. So we're currently writing a study of the lessons from the unconventional war. And the assets were there. To give you some examples, um, you know, General Kolinich, who's a senior officer in the security service of Ukraine was arrested in July, right, on charges of treason. General Naumov, another senior officer who was responsible for the part of the SBU that can authorize the tapping of other SBU officers, was arrested in Serbia, crossing the border with a large amount of cash. So the agents were real. But I think what has to be understood is that These agents were recruited over three decades. Some of them were trained not in Ukraine, but in the KGB before the breakup of the Soviet Union. And they weren't recruited in order to, for this particular scenario, right? They were recruited to further Russian interests in all sorts of different ways. And some of them had been very active in doing that for a long time. 
what they did when they were actually in Ukraine was often recruited under false flag, lots and lots of people who worked under them. So, you know, if you want some information out of the Forestry Commission on some updated piece of information about the Chernobyl nuclear power plant or, or forestry or maps or whatever, and a senior Ukrainian official says, can you send that over to me? You might not be supposed to send that over, but that doesn't mean you think you're helping the Russians, right? Now, in a context of political instability where there isn't a war on, lots of these agent networks work quite well. Um, but in a context where the FSB in July take over the planning for this, and they're actually working through agents who are being managed by the SVR, the GIU, they look at this map of all of these penetrations and they think, fantastic, we, we basically control the Ukrainian government already. The problem being that, firstly, agents have a real tendency in reporting to exaggerate their own influence and capabilities to win money. And when you start looking at how much money some of these people were getting, you kind of go, wow, okay. The second point is that I might be prepared as a, not me as Jack, but you know, as a hypothetical criminal, say, in Ukraine, corrupt official, be prepared to take some money to hand over material that I shouldn't. At the point where they're shelling my village and invading my country, I might feel suddenly quite differently about my relationships. The FSB thought it had played Ukraine, but it and Russia got played. The Russians expected an uncontested invasion because of what their FSB told them. And that might be why their military plans were so inadequate. And the expected 72-hour procession into the centre of Kyiv soon turned into a bloody standoff, now more than a year old. So what did prompt Vladimir Putin to give that final order to invade? A clue could be found in series one of this podcast when I investigated what Putin wants. I spoke then to Artyom Lis, a Ukrainian journalist and former BBC World Moscow editor. At the time we spoke, he was on assignment at a Lithuanian airfield. For the Russian government and for Mr Putin's regime, projecting its influence outside of Russia's border is far more important than making sure that people within Russia are economically comfortable. So I think, again, if you think back to the Soviet Union, it was never a hugely rich state. People lived quite poor lives, and yet the Soviet Union had missiles, and yet, as people who lived there would say, um, that's, that's a common phrase you hear in Russia, people respected us. So ultimately, this is what Mr. Putin and people like him want. They want respect, and to them, respect comes with fear. There's a Russian proverb, um, if they respect us, it means they fear us. In the last episode, we heard from Mark Galliotti, Russia expert and author, most recently of Putin's wars from Chechnya to Ukraine. I asked Mark if we should be surprised that Putin took his gamble in 2022. No, I very much see it as part of a, a continuity. And look, obviously Putin... Over the 23 years he's been in power, he has changed. And like most authoritarian rulers, in effect, he has increasingly become a, a caricature of himself. But nonetheless, you know, I think we can see the contours of how Putin looks at the world from, frankly, before he was president. 
Look, of all those years, Russia has not been at war in some way or another for three of them. So only three out of 23. And that reflects the fact in part of the way that for Putin, he's a very 19th century geopolitician. You know, he believes Russia has a birthright to be a great power. And his idea of great power is not anything to do with soft power and economic dynamism and so forth. It's really the capacity to impose your will and to not have other people's will imposed upon you. And so from the very beginning, military strength and warfighting capability was central to his vision for Russia in the future. And he dumped a hell of a lot of money in it. And he's also aware that you have to be able to demonstrate this power. And a parade through Red Square is all very well, but not necessarily enough. So sometimes he also uses military force demonstratively, just simply to say, we've got this. Putin's apparent need to play the role of international hardman also has its roots in the modern Russian experience. In our earlier episode on Russia's leader, we heard from writer Peter Pomerantsev whose family fled Soviet-era Kyiv when his poet father was targeted by the KGB. Here's what Peter had to say about the post-Soviet political fallout. I think for a lot of Russian elites, and maybe actually I think not just Russian elites, I think this is where the elites have something very much in common with the people in maybe where some sort of common sense of the world exists, is that the reality that you see can end at any moment. So anyone who went through 91 lived through wasn't just the system disappearing, whole concepts disappeared, whole sociological categories disappeared. Um, the language that you used to describe the world suddenly became pointless. Um, who you were disappeared, you know, so you didn't describe you as a proletarian or as an intelligentsia. All of that, all those, that language became empty. And people learned to kind of negotiate flux. Yeah, they learned to negotiate chaos and flux in terms of institutions, careers, identification, but also that 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 kind of crosses over into uh, political warfare, your sense of information, your sense of what the media does, that really does communicate and bind Putin to his people, what he taps into. And I think this is more anecdotally rather than, than something as, as weak as sociology in a dictatorship, is this self-destructive thing. There is something that it is an embitterment, a resentment, an allowance and an okaying of all that is most repulsive in one. As we look back over the near quarter century that Putin has now ruled Russia, we see an increasing paranoia, resentment of the West and isolation, depending ultimately on a tiny number of ultra-loyal yes-men. Covid, of which Putin was evidently very scared, only increased this tendency. Vladislav Zubok is a Russian historian. I asked him what drove Putin to these lengths. Paranoia. Possibly self-isolation during pandemic, uh, most likely, uh, is uh, increasing interest in history, particularly viewed through the lenses of extreme Russian nationalism and imperialism. He was interested in it instrumentally because, you know, his propaganda had to create an all-Russian identity. But gradually he began to get convinced in it himself. And it worked also through uh, the uh, Orthodox Church. He allegedly had the person 
person uh, uh, to whom he confessed that belonged to the extremely reactionary wing of the Orthodox, Russian Orthodox Church. But then he discovered history and he began to read archives. And that was, I think, I would stress that was another fateful pebble because anyone who reads archives, and people think that archives are innocent, sort of mm. boring, dusty documents. No, archives scream in your face. You know, you, you can you can read the, the protocols of torture of, of people under Stalin, you know. So Putin became interested in, in, in the 20, in 1920s, the Leninist period, and then Stalinist period. And I think that affected him to some extent. He began to think, what is Ukraine? And uh, you, you hear Putin uh, saying in, uh, you know, 2021 in his infamous article, it's like an echo, a shadow of those debates among the Bolsheviks. Is Ukraine a nation or not? And Putin essentially took side, I don't know, if Trotsky or someone said, no, Lenin is wrong. You know, Ukraine is not a separate nation. But also, I think ultimately he decided all those Bolsheviks, they, they, they're enemies of the Russian nation. We need to have a great Russia, that period, you know, yes. that's. I'm Peter the Great, I'm Putin, I will lead you to victory. So is it then incorrect? Because some people say that he's trying to recreate the Soviet Union, but that's incorrect. He's absolutely, to... absolutely incorrect. Yeah. Putin wants to grab what he believes belonged to great Russia. He's ethno-nationalistic imperialist. Yeah. I don't know, it's it's the same for Ukraine, it's the same for the Balts, but it's it's a major difference. Yes. And in that regard, as you say, it's Peter the Great, it's Catherine the Great, you know, it, it goes to a much deeper uh, well of history. Do we know who his guide is? I mean, you've talked about the sort of the madness of um, archives and the risks of all that, but I assume that he's had people to sort of show him the way. I don't think that anybody showed him the way. Uh, he's a kind of person who is deeply secluded. He doesn't want to listen anymore to any alternative views of history. At some point, he his mind closed up. He's inside the bubble that he's, he, he created, which reminds me of a recent episode when he went to the city that used to be called Stalingrad, and yes. now it's called Volgograd. And he didn't say much, but he said a few things that, uh, again, he mentioned archives. He said, I've been reading some archival documents. I said to myself when I read it, aha, again, here we go again. But also the symbolism of uh, Stalingrad, I should mention. Yes. Because, yes. He compared himself to Peter the Great repeatedly and Catherine the Great. But the main well of his symbolical power, soft power among the Russians, remains the Second World War. For Putin, whose own family suffered terribly in World War II, this defining moment of Soviet-Russian history appears to have played into his increasing obsession with Ukraine. The existence in history of Ukrainian nationalists that fought Soviet Russia some in an alliance with the Nazis, appears to have played into Putin's increasing Russian nationalism and his depiction of Ukraine's government as fascist. Jade McGlynn, author of the new book Russia's War, is an expert on Russian nationalism. The history that's promoted, not just by Putin as well, because I think we have to be careful because it's natural that we focus very much on him, but really I think he's articulating what many Russians want to hear. And why it resonates is because although, you know, with bits from imperial history stuck on with bits from Soviet history, it doesn't really make that much sense. Actually, it does in the sense that it all is cohered together by a certain argument that 
clearly Russia needs a strong state. So any history that supports that, which is why you see this sort of kind of partial rehabilitation of Stalin and any history that shows that Russia is a great power. And the core element of that is the Great Patriotic War, which is essentially the, the Soviet experience of, of World War II from 1941 to 1945, because obviously they don't want to remember about 1939 because of the Molotov-Ribbentrop Pact. I mean, I've, I've, never, I've never gone hungry for one of a World War II analogy in Britain either, but the intensification is something, is just on a completely different scale. It's really part of everyday life. And it's worth noting, of course, that the Soviet experience was just sort of epically tragic with, with 27 million Soviets dying. But what's happened is Russia's very much sort of nationalised the heroism and nationalised any of the kind of victimhood to Russia and then externalised any form of, of sort of collaboration or any form of, of nastiness that, that happened or, of course, just outright denies it. Um, and so we see this a lot with the idea that Ukrainians are somehow Nazis or, or Nazi collaborators, uh, whereas Russians are the heirs to the Red Army. And, you know, I watch a lot of Russian propaganda and they'll be standing in some random field in, in Ukraine and it will almost, you know, so often it will start in World War II, their ancestors, you know, fought back the Nazis here. And of course, Russia and, and Putin, they try to then project this narrative abroad as well, because essentially their moral right to be a great power and to dictate to others does come from 1945 and from their victory over Nazism. Um, and that's what's interesting now is that they're trampling all over that. Um, that was something that did still exist. And I think they're trampling all over it in, in Ukraine. We've heard how Putin weaponizes history, but rather than buy into Putin's narrative, there may be a far simpler phenomenon at work here. Ukraine has become a functional democracy with properly contested elections. Its populations want to join the EU because they see a better economic and political life inside that bloc. For Putin, the prospect of Russia's largest, most influential neighbour flourishing because it has moved away from Moscow's orbit is a huge threat to his own internal legitimacy. A Russian population that looks west to Kyiv and wishes it could have a similar political settlement spells disaster for the dictator in the Kremlin. Here's the Ukrainian journalist Olga Tokaryuk, who I spoke with at the end of 2022. Russia cannot stand that Ukraine was becoming a success story, that it was becoming a strong democracy with vibrant civil society. Uh, Ukrainian economy for the first time in late last year was surpassing Russian economy in terms of uh, per capita income. The extent of change and of transformation that Ukraine has undergone since the revolution of dignity, since the Euromaidan, and since Russia first launched its uh, invasion in the spring of 2014, is remarkable, is extraordinary. So many reforms have been done on so many levels, starting from fight against corruption to, you know, transparency of public procurement, 
military reform, getting closer and closer to NATO standards, better equipped, better trained. We are seeing the results now on the battlefield. And, uh, of course, also the strengthening of Ukrainian civil society, uh, the media um, activists, uh, uh, human rights organizations. And the new generation was growing also in Ukraine. You know, children who were maybe at school when uh, the revolution of dignity was happening in 2013 and 2014, and now they are adults, and some of them are on the battlefield now defending Ukraine. And those children, they have grown up with a completely different set of values, different from uh, definitely their uh, peers in Russia. And, and those values were a commitment to freedom, a commitment to democracy, and the commitment to the notion of um, human rights as something that should be defended and something valuable. And also the feeling that you have power. Every single individual has uh, agency and is able to have an impact. And this is, I think, is something that uh, very much distinguishes uh, the mentality of Ukrainians now as opposed to mentality of Russians. And this is something that also a lot of analysts in, uh, in the West and other countries failed to take into account and to notice. Russia's fear of Ukraine points to the way that we have all underestimated that country. We spoke about this with political scientist Alexander Clarkson in our series of war bulletins going behind the headlines of the conflict. But I think it's a much more systemic problem. But it's also a systemic problem, I think, that isn't just a Russian one. It was one that I think, think shot through a lot of analysis in Europe and the United States about the strength of the Ukrainian state. So a trope of since 2014 or even since 1991 has always been that Ukraine has a strong society, but a weak state. And I think that was a fundamental misunderstanding about, first of all, how the Ukrainian state operates, a misunderstanding about the extent to which Ukrainian society itself values the state, and the extent to which you can have a lot of deep dysfunctions, yet still have a functional state if all parts of society see their existential interests threatened. Right. And I think this is the classic thing is, is people you know, have been looking at the Ukrainian army. And I, I looked at these estimates in the summer and, and the autumn about how fall the, quickly the Ukrainian army would collapse and all of that stuff. And it, some of it was just based on assumptions, I mean, that were completely at variance with what the Ukrainian army was becoming. It was not strong enough to defeat the Russians in armored maneuver warfare. But the Ukrainian military leadership aren't dipsticks. Right? I mean, they understood that perfectly well and have been planning around that for years and years. And if you think this is bad enough in US and EU analysis that still operate around this ridiculous paradigm that Ukraine is some kind of failed state, which is nonsensical, then that's obviously deeply embedded as well in the Russian general staff. And my mistake, among other things, was to think that the, of all the people, the Russian general staff that has some professionals in it would understand that this would be a tough task. And there were actually a lot of indications among well-connected Russian military analysts that there has been there's been like pushback internally against some of this stuff. I think if you read it back at what was being written in January and December from well-connected bloggers, I think it was really clear that there must have been a debate going on from people saying, hold on a minute, this is crazy. But, you know, clearly it's not just a Russian attitude problem. It's a general, I think a wider sort of quasi-colonial view of Ukrainian society, which also means that when the Russians read Western analysis, they think, well, you see, we're right. These Ukrainians won't be able to handle it. And that was a huge, huge, huge blunder. Once the invasion was underway, it was soon clear how large a blunder this was by Russia, both in terms of pre-conflict analysis and, of course, in the foolishness of their tactics. So why did so many people get it wrong? Jack Watling again. I think one of the really interesting things 
is uh, before the war started, there were lots of officials running around saying, you know, the, the Ukrainians are going to collapse in 72 hours and it'll be over in 10 days. And a lot of that was premised upon assessments which were built around modeling um, of how the Russians would fight, which essentially were computer models. Uh, and I remember pushing back pretty strongly against this before the war, kind of going, well, if we look at 2014, 2015, I can think of instances where the Russians shelled themselves. I think this is going to be much more messy than that. I think it's going to take a lot longer. Um, I'm not saying at all there that I predicted that the Ukrainians would uh, blunt the Russian offensives to the extent that they did. So it's not, I'm not saying that I was, you know, I got it right and D, I got it wrong. But the pushback that I got from uh, people making official assessments, which I think was a very valid question, was okay what level of friction should we actually put into this? At that point, it just becomes, well, roughly how biased are you against Russian combat capability? Yeah. Um, How do you you model pre-conflict that your opponent's going to be really stupid? (laughs) You know, we've talked so much about the Russians because so much of this is about their failure. But what, what about the Ukrainians? It's almost a sort of standard thing to say that they surprise the world and impress the world with their valor and determination and, and no question. But what were the specific things that, that made a real difference from your perspective? So the first thing is that the Ukrainians have been fighting this war for eight years by that point. And many, many people had served in the East who had left the military. So they had maybe done one or two tours on the line of contact. Yep. and so. The Ukrainian military was very psychologically prepared over a long period of time for the idea that they might end up in in an all-out conflict with Russia. Secondly, the reorganization of the Ukrainian military since 2015 under General Mozhenka was substantive, and it's, it's really important to understand the scale of capability they came into this conflict with. They came into it with 900 main battle tanks, with... 1,178 barrel artillery pieces with 1,680 multiple launch rocket systems and with ammunition for all of that stuff to fire, you know, at at full pelt for about two months. You know, this is a very, very well-armed state. Yeah. And that that was through sustained investment of Ukrainian defense industry and preparation. And then the third element is a cultural Mm. point, which is that, you know, the Russian culture is very orders centric, right? I receive instructions, I follow the instructions. Uh, and then even if it doesn't work, I tell the people that I fulfilled the instructions. Yeah. Ukrainian society is not very uh, hierarchical, right? Mm. It's, it's very collegiate. People are quite happy doing things without being told. And so at the point where you found commanders cut off, they knew what their objective was. Their objective was to kill Russians or defend the bit of territory that was in front of them, and they set about doing it. And that mindset difference is very important. Fascinating. Just out of interest, for the non-specialist listener, you you described a very well-equipped military, nine hundred tanks, a range of artillery, and other other capabilities. That's I think it's an important context because I think there is this sort of myth has set in that basically Ukraine was was an unarmed society uh, that that somehow managed to hold off a Russian invasion, but it's actually very different. Very very different to that. You know, the, the Ukrainians went into this with sixty division, uh, which is it's between a battery and a battalion of air defences. You know, the UK has four batteries. So they had 60, we have four of medium-range air defence systems. Essentially, other than Finland, Ukraine was the best armed and prepared military in Europe. 
The battle continues and we have to defeat the Kremlin on the battlefield, yes. This battle is not only for the territory, for this or another part of Europe. The battle is not only for life, freedom and security of Ukrainians or any other nation which Russia attempts to conquer. This struggle will define in what world our children and grandchildren will live and then their children and grandchildren. It will define whether it will be a democracy of Ukrainians for all. I'm Ros Taylor with news of Oh God, What Now?, the politics podcast that's never going to leave its voter ID at home. On Friday's show, it's six months until the US election and Donald Trump is stuck sitting on trial in a New York courthouse. Is he bulletproof or can Joe Biden turn around the polls? In the second half, it's local elections week, but we've steadily taken power away from local authorities. What if we gave it back? And in the extra bit for supporters, is there a right level of ruthlessness in politics? That's Oh God, What Now? with me, Ros Taylor, Raphael Baer, Hannah Fern, guest Nikki McCann-Ramirez, out now, wherever you get your podcasts. If we underestimated Ukraine, we severely underestimated its leader. Volodymyr Zelensky grew up speaking Russian in a Jewish-Ukrainian family. As a comedian and entertainer, he had a huge following in Ukraine and was also a well-known figure in Russia. His trajectory from actor playing Ukraine's president in a sitcom to actual president of Ukraine is remarkable. But the further ascent from mercurial politician to inspiring war leader was perhaps the biggest surprise of all. Stephen Derricks is co-author of a biography of the Ukrainian president. I spoke to him at the end of 2022, the year that Zelensky was unsurprisingly named Time's Man of the Year. Let's not forget that he was an extremely uh, popular figure in Russia as well. In 2012, I believe he still presented the New Year's show, which is a very big event on Russian television. So he was one of the most uh, popular people in Russia as well, as an actor, as a, as a comedian. Uh, but then in 2014, everything changed when uh, Putin resorted to violence. And he had to make a choice. And he decided that, that, that his Ukrainian background is, is more important than his Russian business interests. So he squarely uh, declared himself to be for Ukraine. He supported the Ukrainian forces. Um, he performed uh, on the front line. He uh, collected money for the Ukrainian army, which led to uh, a big scandal in Russia and actually finished, finished off his Russian business. I even believe that the, uh, the prosecution started uh, uh, to investigate him in Russia. So uh, uh, at the moment when he had to make a choice between the two countries, he, uh, he firmly uh, chose Ukraine. And, and actually, if, the, if there's one thing that this war is doing is uniting Ukraine and defining Ukraine as a nation. What is happening is actually the exact opposite of what Putin wants. Ukrainians needed a leader they could believe in, even when that belief seemed to be in the realm of fantasy. We heard from Ukrainian political scientist Petro Burkovsky in the previous episode. I would tell you frankly that many people in Ukraine, they did not believe that the war will start. 
So for many people, um, defiance, determination and the bravery of Zelensky, uh, it served an, as an example, as an example, uh, especially for those people who did not expect the war and who did not expect him to become this kind of leader. Perhaps nothing exemplifies Zelensky's role more than the first moments of the invasion. In those uncertain hours, he would have known that there were Russian agents and spies, including people inside his own intelligence service in government, who wanted him out of power. Some of these people might even have been plotting his assassination. The general expectation was that Zelensky would flee to a neighbouring country. In fact... President Biden offered to get him out of Ukraine to safety. His reply will be remembered as one of the classic lines, one that most world leaders will wish they had thought of. I don't need a ride, Zelensky told Biden. I need ammo. Всім добрий вечір. Президент тут. Слава нашим the war had started to assume the character of its leaders. Putin, paranoid, vengeful, isolated, and reliant on a narrow range of unreliable advisors telling him what he wanted to hear. Zelensky, energetic, a brilliant communicator, unpredictable but also seemingly candid. Two images defined these men in the earliest hours of conflict. On the 25th of February, according to the FSB, President Zelensky should have been in hiding or fleeing to another country or executed. But instead, he showed his instinctive courage by taking a walkabout in central Kyiv, uploading a selfie video to the internet in which he declared, we're all here. Our military is here, our citizens are here, we are all here defending our independence. It was simple, perhaps even a little desperate, but it showed hope, determination, and above all, a refusal to hide away from the Russian onslaught. Two days later, Russia released an image of its own president. Vladimir Putin is sitting closest to the camera, his back to us, at the end of a table so long that it entered the realms of parody. Indeed, it has sparked endless internet memes. Barely visible at the far end, perhaps more than 10 metres away, are his defence minister and chief of staff. Whilst Ukraine's president and his closest advisers had stood outside in Kyiv, reassuring the public that they weren't going anywhere, Putin, in some anonymous Kremlin bunker, was too scared even to be close to his own officials. The Ukrainians could not have dreamed of a more definitive image of a dictator removed from reality. In this first phase of the war, Russia's strategy had failed. Its hybrid warfare hadn't delivered, and its blitzkrieg had turned into a traffic jam. So Russia changed its strategy, reverted to type, to a style of warfare that Putin has practiced throughout his time as president, targeting civilian populations. Join us next time for episode three, War Crimes, Russia's Pivot to the East.
I'm Tatiana Pechonchik. Uh, I'm the Human Rights Defender from the Human Rights Center's Bina. 5 a.m. is the precise time when we all woke up on 24th of February from the sounds of explosion. Uh, me personally, in my apartment in Kyiv. Um, now we are all scattered. Uh, my brother, he voluntarily joined Ukrainian army and he is now defending Ukraine with his weapon in his hands near Donetsk. My parents-in-law are now refugees in Geneva. Their house was uh, hit by the Russian munition and partially destroyed. They lived in Irpin, uh, close to Bucha. We were lucky to evacuate them just uh, a day before that part of Irpin was taken by Russian troops. Uh, the rest of my family is in Rivne region. It's uh, close to the border with Belarus, with also continuing threat of the invasion from, from Belarusian side. And I live now in Kiev, uh, often go into the bomb shelters. So in a way, we are all experiencing this, this war uh, and these very dramatic pages uh, of our history. Every morning, uh, I wake up and uh, immediately check uh, my messengers and uh, sending uh, questions to my relatives, to my colleagues, asking if they are alive, because uh, every morning Kyiv is attacked by Russian drones and sometimes by Russian rockets. Uh, you know, we were called by many of our colleagues from other countries that we are brave and courageous people. And that's true, but the ultimate desire that I have is not to be neither victim uh, nor, uh, you know, a, a very brave person, but just to live ordinary, normal life. Doomsday Watch is written and presented by Arthur Snell and produced and edited by Robin Lieber. Group editor is Andrew Harrison and our theme tune is by Paul Hartnell. Doomsday Watch is a Podmasters production.